Well, every so often, uh, my wife Lindsay will go out of town for you know a conference or a trip home or something like that, and I'm left holding down the fort, so to speak. Well, it might surprise you to know uh, that between the two of us, I am the let's say messier and less organized one. I know that's shocking to you. Well, while she's away, I tend to get a bit uh, creative, creative with food and snack choices, creative with dish handling, creative with laundry receptacles, you get the idea. But the day that Lindsay is scheduled to come home, guess what I'm doing? <laughs> That's right, I'm cleaning house. Well, the Jews at the temple in Jerusalem should have given more attention to keeping things clean, because in this passage, Jesus is going to pay the temple a visit, and he is going to have to do some cleaning up after them, if you know what I mean. The first thing to note about this passage is uh, sort of the chronology of it. So all four Gospels record the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. Matthew, Mark, and Luke each place this, this event um, during the final week of Jesus' life, that is between his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and his crucifixion. John, however, records this story in chapter 2, apparently very early in Jesus' ministry. And we can either take this to mean that Jesus actually cleansed the temple in this way on at least two separate occasions, once here kind of early in his ministry, and then another time about three years later when he is entering Jerusalem for the final week of his life, he visits the temple and once again clears out um, the, the money changers and things that he finds there. Uh, or it could mean that John is simply using the very same historic material in a different way. And so we know that John seems to arrange his gospel uh, thematically and theologically uh, and not always in a strictly chronological way. And so it could be that, that John is placing the temple cleansing here to show us Jesus engaging with these four major aspects of Jewish religion that we've been seeing. So a wedding uh, last week, the, the, the message from last week, uh, the temple here, uh, a rabbi in John chapter 3 in Nicodemus, and then a sacred well uh, where he'll interact with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. So it could be that John is simply arranging the material uh, in this thematic way, and so he uses the story of Jesus cleansing the temple and places it here because it serves his theological purpose for writing, even though it's not strictly in sequence with the rest of Jesus' ministry. But however we take it, um, the, the story is, uh, is, is reliable and, 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 and very powerful for us as we look at, at Jesus entering the temple. Now, to really understand what is going on and how uh, sort of mind-blowing this event would be, you have to have some notion of how important the temple is to the Jewish people. The temple is the center of Jewish life and worship. You want to worship God? You go to the temple. You want to pray? Go to the temple. You want to make animal sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins? Go to the temple. Want to bring God an offering of fruit or burn incense and praise to God? Guess what? Go to the temple. In fact, it was so important to the Jewish faith 
that it had come to be synonymous with the very identity of the Jewish people. The temple represented all that they were and all that they stood for. And most importantly, it stood as a reminder that they were God's people and that God himself was with them and on their side. And so we find in verse 13 of chapter 2 that the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So the first thing we see here is that Jesus' trip to Jerusalem demonstrates his commitment to the festivals of Judaism. Remember, he said elsewhere in Matthew chapter 5 that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, which included, apparently, an annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem during the Passover. So this had become the, the custom of the Jews at that annual celebration and remembrance of God, God's deliverance of the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt at Passover. They would from wherever they were, they would travel to Jerusalem for a week of, uh, of feasting and worshiping and a sacrifice in order to worship God in uh, thanks for the Passover. And so while they were in Jerusalem, the Jews would participate in a sacrifice, a symbolic meal. They would study and reflect upon uh, the law and God's salvation. And you got to remember that thousands of people are coming into Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Um, the, Ju Jerusalem was, was said to be home to about 50,000 Jews ordinarily. And during the week of Passover, it would swell to maybe three times that size. So we're talking 150,000 people in this city that's home to a third of that number. And so as people are coming into Jerusalem, they needed to acquire the animals necessary for these ritual sacrifices. So the temple leaders had set up a system of uh, currency exchange. That's where you'll see the term money changers and animal purchase for the convenience of the thousands of traveling Jewish worshipers. And of course, there's the very real possibility of corruption and extortion in these dealings. It could be uh, that the people who are ch exchanging currencies are offering a very uh, inflated rate of exchange. Uh, and those who were selling, you know, uh, doves and sheep for the sacrifices could have been offering a very inflated price for these animals and thus making a pretty nice profit in selling these animals. Well, Jesus enters the scene and he's not happy about it. So in verse 14, it tells us, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now the way the temple was constructed, there were two basic parts. There was the temple proper, the actual building right in the middle of the complex, uh, which only Jews were allowed to enter. And then around that building was the court of the Gentiles, which was this outer courtyard where non-Jewish worshipers could bring their offerings and say prayers to God. It's sort of like a lobby in a modern day church building. And it is in this outer courtyard where money changing and animal sales are going on. So this is the only part of the temple that the Gentiles are allowed to enter. And it has been converted into a marketplace 
that is surely bustling with people and activity and noise, and thus functionally keeping the Gentiles away from the worship of God, which might give us a clue into why Jesus is so distraught when he enters the place. And in verse 15, we're going to see Jesus' response. And he, in fact, is going to create a scene of his own. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. The Synoptic Gospels actually call this a house of thieves or a den of robbers. Very strong phrase that Jesus uses there in condemning the actions and the corruptions of the Jewish temple leaders by making the temple of God into a marketplace. So Jesus enters and he starts making a whip. You almost wonder if his disciples were standing near him going and seeing him kind of twist this whip together and going, and so uh, what you doing, Jesus? Uh, what, what are you making there? Wondering what's about to happen. And Jesus goes a little bit bananas. He's flipping the whip around, probably not hitting people, I imagine, but probably using it to drive out the animals. And so he's driving out all these animals, setting free all these uh, pigeons and doves from the, uh, the, the cages that they're in. And he's shouting at people, get out, don't make my father's house a house of trade, and causing quite a stir. Do you find it hard to picture Jesus losing his cool like this? Is it difficult for you to imagine how he could create this scene in the temple courts and somehow not slip over the boundary line into sinful anger? John Ruskin said, I believe it to be quite one of the crowning wickednesses of this age that we have starved and chilled our faculty of indignation and neither desire nor dare to punish crimes justly. Paul says, be angry and do not sin. And I think the fact that we can hardly see how that's even possible is an indicator that we have forgotten how to be righteously indignant. That is, move to anger for the cause of holiness. When's the last time that you were provoked to outrage for the sake of God's glory? When's the last time that dishonor brought to God's name bothered you to the point of anger? This indignation on the part of Jesus is surely an expression of his holiness and no mere temper tantrum. In fact, we see in the very next verse that this outburst of indignation is itself the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy concerning the Messiah. In verse 17, he quotes, uh, or it, there's a quotation by his disciples saying he, they remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me, which is a quotation of Psalm 69, verse 9. And again, John is intentionally showing Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament. In his role as the Messiah, his teachings and actions in real life are fulfillments of promises and prophecies made by the Old Testament prophets. In Malachi 3.1, we read these words, 
Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. <laughs> he is connecting Jesus as the purifier of the temple to this promised Messiah who would come like a refiner's fire and refine the very offerings that the people of God make to him. There's another thing he's doing here intentionally in quoting Jesus as saying, you have made my father's house into a house of trade. Because if Jesus is saying that the temple is his father's house, who does that make him? It makes him the son of God. And remember, that is John's very purpose for writing this gospel, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And so Jesus is acting then in the interests of God, the Father, Yahweh, the God of Israel. Well, not surprisingly, the temple leaders uh, respond to Jesus in a way that, that reveals their ignorance, their superficiality, their shallowness. They kind of try to avoid, I think, the, penetrate, the penetrating gaze of Jesus uh, by basically challenging his authority. In verse 18, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? <laughs> so they're kind of defending themselves by challenging his authority. What right do you have, all right, to say this? And isn't this a common defense mechanism? When we're confronted with uncomfortable truth, when we're called on the carpet for our sins, we're inclined to question the accuser. How dare you? What gives you the right to say that to me? So let's be sure that we allow the word of God to speak hard truth into our lives and that we are willing to receive correction from the Lord. Because, of course, we prefer the cuddly Jesus, the, the gentle Jesus, the image of Jesus with you know, blue eyes and a soft gaze holding a lamb. That's, that's the Jesus that we prefer. And we tend to recoil at the conviction of the Holy Spirit and, and a Jesus who would be willing to twist together a whip and drive money changers out of the temple. But let's allow Jesus to bring his holiness to bear in our lives and to speak hard truth to us. Why do you have the authority to say what happens in the temple, right? So this is the basic question they're asking him. How can you claim that the temple is your father's house? Prove it is essentially what they ask him. What sign do you show us for doing these things? And so Jesus is going to answer them in verse 19 and 20. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. <laughs> what do you mean, Jesus? Destroy this temple that's taken 46 years to build, 
this temple that was started in the year 20 BC and actually won't be completed for like another 20 years, destroy this temple, the place where God's people must come in order to worship him, this temple, the centerpiece of our identity and faith. Is that what Jesus meant? You're going to destroy this, the very center point of Jewish life and identity and worship that's taken 46 years to build to this point and rebuild it in three days. But we learn in verse 21, because John tells us, that's not what Jesus meant. Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Here's the point Jesus is making in all of this. Jesus is the new temple. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus himself would replace the temple, the center of Jewish worship, the pillar of Jewish identity. And he himself will be Emmanuel, God with us. He himself will be the central location, if you will, of the presence of God with his people. And the sign by which he proves his authority is his resurrection, right? So when he says, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days, he's talking about the death of his body and his resurrection from the grave. Jesus predicts his death and resurrection by which he would become the sacrifice for sins that would make all the sacrifices of pigeons, sheep, and oxen in the temple totally obsolete. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus himself would become the central point of the life and worship of God's people. You want to worship God? Go to Jesus. You want to pray? Go to Jesus. You want a sacrifice that will cover all your sins and purchase forgiveness? Go to Jesus. Let Jesus represent all that you are and all that you stand for. Let Jesus Christ become the center and source of your identity. Let the death and resurrection of Jesus be the indisputable proof that God is with you and that he is on your side. Well, we get a, a little insight into how the disciples heard this in verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So even Jesus' disciples didn't get this right away. But after his resurrection, these words came back to their minds, and then they make sense. John tells us they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Have you believed in Jesus? Are you trusting in his atoning death and his triumphant resurrection to pay the price for your sins and to make you clean before God? Before you're too quick to answer that question, consider that many who claimed to believe, indeed perhaps thought they believed, had a faith that turned out to be only skin deep. Let's take a look at the last verses in this chapter. Verse 23 through 25, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knows when a person's apparent belief 
a worship of God is superficial. You know, in Matthew 7, verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. They'll say, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? And I will say, depart from me. I never knew you. So it seems that the belief in Jesus on the part of at least some in Jerusalem was not real and it wouldn't last. So let's examine ourselves to see, is there hypocrisy in us and our claim to believe in Christ? Is our belief only skin deep? Is our faith in Jesus more than just words, more than an appearance of churchiness or religiosity? Friend, please be sure today that your life and eternity are resting soundly upon the finished work of Jesus on your behalf and that his atoning sacrifice upon the altar of a cross is applied to your account through faith. And if you're a follower of Jesus, maybe the Lord would say something different to you today. Maybe he would like to remind you that you are acceptable to him, pleasing to him, a delight to his heart because of Jesus. Maybe he sees you striving to measure up buying your pigeons and sheep, if you will, trying to atone for your sins. And he wants to say to you, rest. I am the new temple. I am the new sacrifice. Your salvation has already been accomplished. So just rest in me. Amen.